Mispronunciation happens all the time in the world of cycling. You've probably heard some friend refer to the Italian apparel manufacturer as Giordana. Giordana. Uh, guess what, folks? It's Giordana. Say it with me. Giordana. Uh, the Giordana Sagittarius logo has been a staple of the Pro Peloton for decades, made in Italy for cyclists by cyclists since 1979. Thanks to a long history of partnerships with top teams in the sport, they have the knowledge to deliver clothing that the pros rely on. Today, it's not just Mitchelton Scott and Astana Pro teams that benefit. Giordana's goal is to empower every rider to reach new heights. That's the drive that constantly pushes them to create and innovate. Everything Giordana makes is designed to enhance cycling performance and enjoyment, whether you're a professional racer or a weekend warrior. And guess what? Fans of the podcast, friends of the podcast right now can get a great deal on Giordana clothing. Head to GiordanaCycling.com. That is G-I-O-R-D-A-N-A cycling.com and get 25% off your purchase. That's a quarter, folks. That's a lot when you use the code podcast at checkout. That's right. Go to GiordanaCycling.com. Use the code podcast at checkout to get 25% off. That's big. Thanks so much to Giordana for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. Okay, let's get on with the show. The Tour de France has a new date for 2020. We also know a bit of information about the World Championships, some national championships, and the rest of the racing calendar is just kind of a big question mark. Uh, welcome back to the Vell News podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you from a very, very sunny day here in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, I am reeling from a weekend of yard projects, um, shoveling dirt and trying to get my like yard in order. And so uh, if I fall quiet during this episode of the Melody's podcast, you know that I succumbed to my exhaustion from my various yard projects. But hey, that's what we're all trying to do. Again, the um, the rules of Velo News podcast COVID nineteen quarantine edition still apply. Apologies in advance for any bad uh, internet connections, babies crying, people pounding on tables, dogs interrupting the podcast, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We're we're dialing it in, folks. We're getting better. Our level of professionalism is inc- improving. I feel like every single episode, um, and this week is going to be a real test because I have both James Start and Andy Hood on the line coming to us from their various um, lockdown lairs in both Paris and uh, Lyon in northern Spain, and we're going to talk all about. The news that came out last week that we have, I would call it a sketch of a 2020 racing calendar. The Tour de France has officially been rescheduled. So have the World Championships and the National Championships. And we're still trying to figure out specific dates for races like, oh, the entire women's racing calendar, Giro d'Italia, Spring Classics, stuff like that. We're going to talk all about why this happened, what it means for pro cycling, what it means for uh, just what the races could look like. And then we've been on the on the horn with a lot of riders and team directors talking about their thoughts on it, too. So, first of all, James Start, you have been chiming in on our uh, various Velenews editorial um, calls by, like, opening up with a couple riffs on your guitar. Because uh, listeners sure. may not know this, but you are a professional musician. Um, what has your music diet been like? in this age of indoor lockdown? That's a good question. Actually, um, I'm doing things I don't usually do. I've been working on some uh, some jazz stuff, for example, on some diatonic scales and diminished scales and 
and things like that, things I don't usually have time to do because I'm working on new songs with the group or getting ready for a concert and running through the set list again. And um, so I've been trying to just stretch out a little bit. It's kind of slow going, but hey, I got time. And uh, there's no need to be playing the songs from our set list because I've been playing them for years. So I'll, I'll play them when we get back on stage. Do you have any – you have any like music recommendations for the listeners out there, people who may be like riding indoors or riding by themselves or just looking for some pick me up new tunes, old tunes, something to just like kind of get them through each day and put a smile on their face? Well, I, I I don't know if I would call them recommendations, but I'll just say offhandedly what I've been listening to for different reasons. Um, because I guess because I've been going into the jazz guitar, I've been uh, went back to one of my, my first loves, which is the Oh, the amazing guitarist, uh, Grant Green. Uh, he had a sort of soul jazz, uh, flavored guitar and he played for the, um, the Blue Note label in the sixties and, and it was just a beautiful, beautiful, uh, understated guitar player. And I've been listening to a lot of John Prine, who was, you know, one of the COVID uh, victims, one of the most recent victims who died last week. And just getting back into his music, I think I started playing music when back in the seventies when he was just coming up and people were going, ah, oh, it's the new Bob Dylan. So I went back to kind of, see what he had and uh man his he he was one heck of a, a songwriter and uh it's a little more country than i i usually go but his songs are just so well constructed and the lyrics are so poetic that i've just been listening a lot to that um i uh, was listening to bb king today up on the roof when i was training uh where i take my, my home trainer um just because he can mix that sort of some of those little jazzy lines into the blues and uh a reggae group, which I really like, is sort of out of L.A. called the Agrolites, which is sort of a punky, funky uh, uh, reggae. You sort of like think when the Clash would play reggae, this is sort of taking that beyond. Excellent. Okay. Well, I'm going to queue up the Agrolites on my Spotify after this and uh, give them a listen. Andy Hood coming to us from the Man Cave in northern Spain. Andy, I mean, like a lot of people, you have been probably consuming – Lots of media, written media, video media. Um, we saw your review on the website of the Movistar Netflix documentary. Um, what kind of culture and media have you been taking in uh, during these, this period at home? Well, my wife and I uh, plugged into HBO for the first time last week, and now we are just junkies of Game of Thrones, uh, you know, well behind the cue ball on that one. But, uh, you know, I think in less than a week, we're already halfway through the series. I can't imagine having to watch that and wait every week for the next chapter to come out or wait the next season for the new, uh, the new series for the next year to come out because we're just uh, totally jonesing on that, watching two, three, four episodes a night. And uh, I don't know what I'm going to do after that. Game of Thrones. Holy cow. You're like five years behind everyone else, Hoodie. My gosh. <laughs> you're ahead of me. <laughs> Most of my cultural cultural references end about the year two thousand anyway, so I'm just you know I figure I'm kind of ahead of myself right now. I, I was just starting to watch the new Netflix uh, documentary on on uh, Michael Jordan and the Bulls last season. We were just talking about it before we went on the air here. How what memories that brings back in the '90s of Jordan? You know, there was no internet. ESPN Sports Center was still king. You know, you had to watch the games live, and it was just a whole different world back in those days, especially in the media landscape and. Uh, I can tell. I just got through the first uh, first hour of that one. That's my that between. That's the perfect uh, thing to watch while on the trainer. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to taking in the rest of that one. Um, I th I always, I've always thought there's like a lot of interesting parallels between uh, Jordan and his 
stature within the NBA and then Lance and his stature within cycling during uh, his era on top where you have one individual who seems to be much larger than the sum of all the parts of the sport that they play and, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly that that can bring to the sport in general. But that's a whole other conversation. All right, guys, let's get into it. We had the news come down late last week that the UCI and the powers that be in the sport of cycling have sketched out something of a calendar for 2020. And right now what that looks like is we have the Tour de France tentatively scheduled for August 29th, running through September 20th. We have the World Championships then picking up immediately afterwards, running September 20th through 27th. And then we have some of the national championships on the calendar as well. And it sounds like these were the three sort of anchor points for the schedule and then other race promoters were uh, sort of free to um, put their events in there. So Andy, you know, take us through this announcement and why it was made and, you know, what it means for the other marquee races out there. Yeah, it was it was a big conversation point with all the key stakeholders. Obviously, it was looking like the tour was not going to happen on its scheduled dates. That was becoming uh, very evident to everybody. So uh, it kind of, you know, it, it kind of revealed uh, a spirit of cooperation. You know, you often see the teams and the UCI and the race promoters often at each, at each other's throats. But they kind of came together on this one and, and kind of drew out, like you described, Fred, kind of a rough sketch of what the season might look like. Um, you know, it's still obviously very much wishful thinking that racing can resume in mid to late August, uh, considering how... France, Spain, and Italy are among the three hardest hit really nations with coronavirus really in the world. All three have uh, nearly 20,000 deaths or at least in Spain and Italy already more than 20,000 each. Uh, so it's hard to, it's hard to imagine uh, that uh, racing, you know, that things can change that fast that will allow racing in some form later this season. But having said that, the powers that be wanted to at least have a game plan if that happens and there were, I think, a couple of interesting motivations of why. You know, first off, something as big and complex as a tour, as a grand tour, you know, it's not something you can just uh, say, "Well, gee, we're going to have it next week." Now, that will have to require them to rejuggle all of the all the stages. I mean, the rough route of the tour is going to stay the same, but they'll have to go through and just make sure, you know, all the things that go into closing the roads, organizing uh, all the hotels, all those kinds of logistical things that usually they have a year or two to work on it. Suddenly, has to be redone within the next couple of months. But most importantly, you know, the tour is like the sun of the cycling universe. So to have the tour back on the calendar in and itself provides almost a lifeline to the sport, it gives a target for the riders. It allows teams to say to their sponsors, yes, we're going to have racing. The tour is back on the calendar. Don't give up on the sport yet. So the importance of that cannot be overstated. Yes, it's optimistic, perhaps more than optimistic, but, Having the tour on the calendar is giving a lifeline to the sport in general. Yeah, and I think that, look, the, the big caveat that Angie mentioned with all of this, this entire conversation, is that none of this happens if um, the powers that be, which are you know national governments and global um, health organizations, decide that the uh, coronavirus pandemic is not yet at a place where things like public gatherings and sports can go on. I mean, it sounds like... The uh, race promoters and the governing bodies are looking at, you know, ways of 
holding these events where maybe they're not getting the same level of crowds, they're controlling crowds, you know, they're creating sort of these quote, quote unquote safe spaces similar to what James saw at Perry Nice. But um, yeah, there's, you know, if, if the coronavirus situation isn't in a good place, the chances of these events like the Tour de France happening, uh, slim to none. Um, I guess a question I have for everyone to begin with is, I mean, do we, What's your what's your take? Do you think this is a good thing? I mean, I've seen a lot of conversation on Twitter from people saying, "Ah, oh, this is, you know, this should be like the Olympics. They should just cancel it. Like, this is putting the cart before the horse. This is a bad idea. We're risking public safety for the benefit of bicycle racing. Um, do we even think it's a good idea to even uh, put this on the schedule? Yeah, James. Uh, well, I think I think it's a good thing, obviously. Um... I think what we saw before they made the announcement was really the desire of pretty much everybody involved in any way, shape, or form in the sport to have the tour and to have the tour be the – that was like the most important race for them to to defend for the reasons that Andy gave. Now, obviously, from a logistical point of view, you could make the argument you'd have a much better chance of getting in a lot of great racing if you say you focused on the classics and the one-day races because then, say – if all of a sudden there's a flare-up in Belgium, well, maybe you have to cancel the Tour of Flanders. Uh, but you could still have um, Milan Sanremo and Stradibianchi and, and Lombardy in, in Italy or vice versa or whatever. You know, it would be a little bit more easy to modulate where is all of a sudden in the three-week race, if there's a flare-up in a, in a part of uh, the country where the race is going to go, which is, you know, sometimes the entire, race, the entire country or half of it, it's just going to bring the whole race down midway through. So... On a logistical point, uh, I think it would probably have been easier to focus on some other things. But uh, as Andy, as Andy said, it just became clear that you know we have the largest annual sporting event, annual sporting event in the world in this, the sport of cycling. And if there's any way that we can have it run in 2020, that should be the priority. Uh, I, I did find it interesting. The only other races guaranteed are races organized by the UCI, uh, national championships and worlds. Uh, I mean, the world was on was is on its calendar and and worked with the tour national championships they're bringing in and defending where we could have perhaps had, you know, a, a, a classic Milan San Remo in August or something along the Riviera. Um, but you know, whatever. I don't know that uh, we're really going to be. You know, questions out if we're going to get the, get through the tour. I really don't know if three weeks of the vault and three weeks of the Giro should be the the next priority. We'll see. That's still a long way away. I think there also is, um, you know, there's a lot of euphoria last week having the dates. And I think this this uh, week, there's a, I just sense a little bit more of a return to reality that, you know, even though we have these dates, they still very much might not happen. I was talking with Bernard Hinault, five-time winner. Um, we were doing we we're doing a little piece on Liege-Bastogne-Liege, which uh, he won on one of the greatest race, uh, greatest uh, editions of, of that race. Uh, we're going to take a look back on that um, uh, this week. Uh, and I was just talking to him a little bit about the tour. And he's like, you know, way too early to say, way too many unknowns. Um, and really, I mean, the sanitary issues are going to dominate. It's just going to be that's, – that's what it's going to come down to. And we really don't know where this is going. We're all in unknown territory. Yeah, I think that's where I'm at with it too. It's like, ah, hooray, we have these things back on the schedule and we have – a target, you know, we have something to work towards as a sport, which is this delayed schedule. The tour is at the end of August and September, and we're going to figure everything else out. And great, um, but 
actually, we really don't know if the world is going to be, let alone France, is going to be in a position at this point to have um, a bike race. But still, the value of this, I feel like, can't be overstated, which is that, you know, Andy, what happens if they just say right now, ah, everything's canceled, tour's canceled, all of the uh, events are canceled, we're going to take a very conservative approach and just just going to cancel all of the big bike races through the end of the season. Like, what happens to the world tour teams and the riders and some of the established structures in the sport if everything is just off. Yeah, it's interesting. We've already, we've already seen some really surprising fallout uh, just really in the first month or so of this coronavirus crisis. Um, already six teams have introduced pretty draconian wage cuts. Uh, this past week was EF had pro cycling. Uh, they cut uh, riders, 40% salary cuts across the board, or, you know, I think it's, uh, depending on on the riders, I think every team is kind of structured. The more you make, perhaps the more you give up. The guys that are making less on a smaller salary, um, you know, not quite giving up as much as some of the guys maybe making a million compared to making uh, one hundred twenty thousand. Um, but EF, you know, we have six World Tour teams already that have gone through either uh, deferments of payments, page uh, salary reductions. A case of CCC. Uh, you know, really on the ropes. It's also had a huge impact on women's cycling as well. A lot of the world tour teams now are sponsoring women's teams and a few of the standalone women's teams are uh, also struggling. You know, what it was revealed is this, how tenuous really uh, the cycling uh, business model is. So if you don't have the tour, if you don't have one season of racing, the fear is there. It's a very legitimate fear that suddenly a lot of these teams will actually have no income, that they won't have money to pay salaries and to even pay for the infrastructure of the team. And that we could see, Several teams collapse at the end of this year. Also could see races collapse. I was surprised to see some comments from the Tour de Suisse last week saying, uh, or maybe it was two weeks ago when they canceled their race, just saying how hard it was for them to try to sell, you know, VIP packages and sponsorships. And they said, you know, we're not even going to try to reschedule our race. We'll have it next year. And with the caveat, and we hope we can save the race for next year. Because suddenly with the way the world economy is, there's just no money coming in. And the way these a lot of these teams are structured is it's not like they just get uh, $20 million at the beginning of the year. These payments, the underwrite, the sponsorships are paid out quarterly. They're paid out monthly. So when a sponsor like CCC sells shoes, suddenly they have no money. Uh, they can't afford to pay for a cycling team. So that's why the tour is so important. So much of every sponsorship is dependent on the tour. Um, but going back to your original question, Fred, about, you know, should this be just shelved and canceled? I think that uh, it's, it's a tightrope that the sport has to walk because – Everyone realizes how fragile the situation is for everyone suddenly in cycling and the implications could be very dire if some racing does not resume. But at the same time, we can't put uh, the economic short term interest of cycling ahead of, uh, of health. Yeah, I mean, it's a microcosm of what's going on in this country right now where, um, you know, we have shut everything down for the greater good of the health of public society. And yet there's a lot of people who are saying, well, we should open it back up and get things rolling again. I think with cycling, I mean, it's look, it's a much smaller little world. But yeah, I, I, you're right. It's like this whole thing has exposed just how fragile this little ecosystem is and and how important the Tour de France is. So if you have a sponsor who all of a sudden is not getting the income that they normally would, and they're having to cut budgets, the first thing they're going to do is looking at that line item for the cycling team that is part of the marketing budget that's not racing and not do bringing in any marketing exposure and not doing its quote unquote job and you're going to cut that out. I think that maybe it's the teams that have a little bit more like patronage 
of an economic model or, you know, their their existence isn't specifically tied to, um, you know, dollars in, dollars out, marketing budgets, but more like the old model of, you know, Daddy Warbucks funding the thing that might be in a little better position. But even, even situations like that, you know, um, really dire economic times force people to look hard at line items on the budget. And as we've seen with cycling, it's like, you know, it's the first thing to go. Um, when we've seen this before with, with just companies that sponsor teams, when the company isn't doing great, it's like the cycling team is the first thing to get sliced. The, uh, it's, it, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, cycling reflects society and it always has. Um, and, and I think it always will. Uh, and we, are, you know, I'm reading tons of stories in, in the press around the world, you know, asking the question, what is our society and our world going to look like when this is over and we're out of it? What sort of things, what sort of changes, uh, you know, do we learn lessons? Do we change society for the better? Did we make changes? Uh, or do we just go back to the same old, same old? Um, and the same questions are going to be asked here in cycling. Lance Armstrong, uh, asked it on his, uh, on his, uh, his own podcast. Uh, he was talking about saying, you know, this maybe is the impetus to, um, start getting some profit sharing, uh, with the big races and the tour to the teams because the, the teams are so fragile. Um, and point is well taken. Um, maybe this will push, uh, the teams to, to demand that. But at the same time, you know, the tour can go, Hey, it's obvious that the, 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 the most important thing in the cycling calendar is the Tour de France. And, uh, why should we share? Uh, you know, if it's not you, it could be a continental team. Uh, you know, we can find 20 teams that'll start this tour and be happy with it. And do, do they really care if, uh, if the world, the level of the world tour goes down, uh, a bit? I don't, yeah, I don't know that that's the, the biggest priority. Um, so, you know, the, the word is out there, but I mean, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of questions on all levels of the sport that are going to be asked that are being asked, uh, that have yet to be answered. I mean, James, you're there in uh, Paris and you're reading the newspapers and talking to people on the street there. I mean, what is the temperature like in France right now for the tour coming back to see, do people see this as like, you know, uh, bread and circuses uh, or do they see this as a you know valuable piece of french life that should come back in the age of coronavirus um you know there's there's obviously going to be people on all sides of that that fence but i, I think people will be happy to see the, the tour i think it'll be very popular if we do manage to pull it off and um you know i certainly understand critiques you know there's certain people that don't care that much about cycling that it might you know it's a nice little pastime they'll you know watch it if it's on tv but they're not passionate about it like we are who just think there's going to be other things that are more important which is fine and true and you know and those those that go hey if you can put off the olympics you can put off the tour but you know the olympics and the tour are very different beasts uh and you know the olympics depends on how many nations hundreds of nations 200 maybe more Honestly, tour, I was kind of thinking about it. If you had, you know, if you can guarantee a dozen of the key cycling nations that they can travel to France and that the France is secure, you can have a tour de France. Um, you know, we don't have the Peloton is rich. It's very international. It's, it's ever, it's ever increasing how international it is, but it's not 250 different nations coming to the tour. Um, so it's, it's more reasonable to think that if Europe gets coronavirus under control or countries like Colombia and Australia do that, um, you know, we could, we can still have a, a pretty representative Peloton. 
Yeah, I think another big difference, and I was listening to a discussion on a podcast about the cancellation of the Olympics, and one of the things they weighed very heavily into it was, yes, travel to and from Japan and the international people and the spread of the virus with all the people that would be coming into one space. But just the uh, the basics of readiness for competition in that the Olympics, you have so many of these events where just the preparation and the practicing requires groups of people to be together and competing as a team and training together. And that's just impossible to do right now. So you'd be looking at a situation in which just from a pure sporting perspective, like there would be people, you know, swimmers can't access swimming pools right now. They're missing five weeks of training. Um, you know, volleyball teams cannot train practicing volleyball together. Cycling, you can train by yourself. I mean, there's a big difference in, you know, cyclists in Italy and Spain and France who are in complete lockdown situations versus those in the United States who can go ride outdoors. But something I keep coming back to now is like, okay, you know, we have this new schedule and the Tour de France is going to be in late August and it's going to be one of the, if not the first big race on the calendar after the national championships. What do we think this means from a sporting perspective with the readiness of the athletes? I mean, normally the tour comes at the end of this buildup period of week-long stage races and the Dauphiné and altitude camps and base miles and this whole season built around this big event with all these guys knowing, you know, at least the marquee riders knowing from January 1st that they are racing for one three-week stretch. And now that entire build-up period is thrown into chaos. What do we think this could mean for the tour itself? You got something to say? Or you want me to- yeah, yeah, I'll jump in here. That Yeah, that's that's a good point because I think it'll just throw in so many uh, hoops in terms of what really we can expect, because ideally there'll be at least one race in the rider's legs before the tour starts, but that might not happen. Uh, so you could see just everyone suddenly having not raced since uh, mid, early to mid-March, you know, jumping into the Tour de France. It'll just produce all kinds of surprises and just people blowing up, people riding into form. And I think you'll see a, a really highly competitive race because – if you think about it, you know, the Giro is not coming first. So all the people that were going to race the Giro will now race the Tour. Uh, and the fact that the stakes will be so high that the expectation probably could be that, well, we might not even get through the Tour. So we might as well just send everybody there to try to get a stage win, to try to get uh, a jersey, to try to get something to hang our season on. So I think you'll probably see one of the most competitive, at least in terms of quality of fields, Uh, folks, today's podcast is also brought to us by Roll Massif, organizers of eight of Colorado's most iconic road, gravel, and mountain bike events. They have events that take riders through the alpine terrain around Copper Mountain. That's the Copper Triangle. Done it. A lot of fun. Uh, and one that takes riders to the desert landscape of the Colorado National Monument. Regardless of the event, you're always guaranteed a great post-ride festival. And to encourage kids to get on their bikes, anyone under the age of 18 rides for free at the road and gravel events. That's big. If you have kids, you want to get them into cycling, take them to a Roll Massif event and they can ride for free. So check it out at RollMassif.com. That is R-O-L-L-M-A-S-S-I-F.com. And listeners of the Velonews podcast, we have a deal for you. You can get 15% off any event Using the code VELONEWS15 at checkout. That's V E L O N E W S 15 
at checkout. Thanks to Roll Messi for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. Okay, let's get back to the show. And one of the most unpredictable tours ever. You know, no, it's going to be just all over the map. There are so many unknowns here, and we don't know what the proper preparation is. Some of these guys are out training, doing massive training. And right now, they're in much better shape than the French or Italians who are sitting at home riding on, on, on trainers. But they may be, like, totally overtrained by the time we get to a real race. Um, and the guys who are sitting on the range, the trainers are just coming into form. Uh, we don't know. And then, like, where we could see very easily, you know, the, the Colombians just going one, two, three, four. I don't know, because they're up there in altitude hanging out. And they're just going to, they're going to come in, you know, and if, as long as they can, you know, get the road miles in. Um, and they're used to like training for races at home. Quintana spends a lot of time, uh, in, in, in altitude at home and comes into the race and bam. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see how people gauge their form. It might be the guys that, that managed to ride through the winter as well and come into the beginning of the season, uh, consistently well that are the ones that are going to be the best for this because they're not going to have a lot of racing in their legs look this is a big caveat of if and when we get there um like this this could be a tour to uh from a media perspective like write a book about or take a deep dive in of just all the different storylines from each rider um building into it i think it could tell us i think it could shed some light on like training techniques and preparation techniques and yeah you know like what happens if you don't have those thousands and thousands of kilometers in your legs because you've been riding zwift at high intensities um you know the other thing that i keep thinking about is what does this mean for the giro and the welta and the classics because it sounds like this uci decision really prioritized the tour and then it's sort of like all right you guys figure everything else out. And it sounds like there's been discussions about um, calendar dates, but there's also been discussions about like smaller rosters for the teams and, you know, uh, maybe more pro continental teams being let in and some world tour teams being let off the hook. Like they don't have to race in every single world tour event that comes back because rosters may be shaken up and preparations may be all over the place. Um, You know, we have this rough sketch of what, is going to go on in the sport, but I mean, Hoodie, what are you hearing about, um, you know, what impact that may have on the rest of this condensed calendar? Yeah. What we're hearing is that, um, that it's going to be kind of an improvised season, obviously. Um, the most important thing is that the races that want to have the races that they can hold them, that as many teams can race as possible and as many races as possible. Uh, the idea, the feeling is let's get everybody, let's give everybody a chance to get something out of this, of what is already a very big mess for the sport. Um, I think that, uh, you know, there's been some discussion about how uh, women's cycling was overlooked or how the Giro or the Welt is getting played second fiddle to the tour. But all those discussions are ongoing right now. It's not like they're ignoring the entire sport just to save the tour. Uh, I think everybody is on the same boat here. They just realize that the tour is kind of a linchpin for so many uh uh, so many parts of this sport. So they said, let's get the tour on the, on the calendar and let's fill out the rest of it. The teams have already agreed that they'll race into late November. Uh, the teams are asking the UCI to kind of ditch all the points and classifications, uh, not have them count going forward. Because if you remember this year, there was a whole new uh, series of world tour licenses that were issued. And then the next round 
in three or four years down the road, when they go through this next uh, process, they're going to have that relegation promotion system in place. So the teams are saying, hey, this is a big, you know, let's, we'll still have a race. We'll still have a winner, but let's not have any of those points and classifications count rolling forward because it's unfair to everybody, really. It puts too much pressure on riders, puts too much pressure on teams. So I think the general feeling is let's just try to save the sport. Let's give everybody a chance to race. It's not going to be ideal. It might not even happen, but let's get the things into place, into motion, so that if we can race, we can race as many people as possible. I think, you know, the more, the more I think about this, you know, obviously we all agree the tour is a high priority. Um, it's such a motor and it's so popular and, and whatnot. But I have serious questions if the Giro and the Vuelta have anywhere close to that sort of place when, I mean, for me, I, I would prioritize after the tour, the classics. As Greg Van Averman said, you know, these are the only times of the year where we actually get a chance to, to shine. And if you're already giving a three-week window, elite window to the tour, the best ride, the best tour riders are going to have their chance. And um, instead of giving the guys that might not be really tour material but could be a podium or something in the Volta or Giro their chance, might be better to give focus on the classics. Uh, the other reason for that are, is that you, by doing that, you're also going to focus on women's racing because there's a lot of women's, a lot of classics. Uh, and one day races that have women's races simultaneously. So you would, ha- you would honor the greatest one day races and also, uh, uh, you know, a tremendous, uh, opportunity to, for some of the women's racing. Yeah. I think there's no way you can get around this thing without having a tremendous amount of overlap too. Um, just looking mm-hmm. at it, I think that that's going to be the, the name of the game. And I, that's where it's going to be putting some pretty big strands on these teams in general. It's just like, you know, Hey, what happens when you have, you know, you have the three week grand tour going on and maybe class, a couple one day classics going on at the same time, plus women's calendar. I mean, it's just going to be like a fire hose of bike races going on all over the place. And, um, you know, there's, I think you can be, you can be critical of the sport for going forward with it in this way of just saying, Hey, let's squeeze in as much as we can. But, you know, it come it, you know, I, I read some column like the outer line was, calling into question this approach of just saying like, God, this is such short-sighted way of, you know, cram everything in there. And this doesn't take into account how exhausted the riders are going to be and the, the preparation and TV contracts and like all these um, parts of the sport that have to be there in order for the sport to go off perfectly. And, you know, I saw some discussion on Twitter about, Hey, you know, doing the tour de France this way, it's not going to be the same tour. You know, if there's no crowds, if it's in, September and the riders aren't all going to be fit and you can't have a publicity caravan and you can't do all this stuff. Like what's the point of doing it? And I get it. I suppose I have some sympathy for that way of thinking, but I guess I keep coming back to the fact that we're in uncharted territory right now. Like we're no, and this has never happened before to the sport. And um, yeah, if the solution is a clap together, like ticky tack, um, you know, bubble gum and like little pieces of paper keeping it together. I mean, that's what that's what we have. And, and in my opinion, having that is better than not having anything and having everything just be a complete write off. I guess that's kind of where I'm falling down on it. But yeah, James, I agree with you. I think they should prioritize the classics, over, especially over the Welta. Um, you know, Spain's so warm. Hoodie, they could race the Welta in southern Spain uh, December into January. Yeah, not a bad idea. Yeah, I mean the weather—the weather is not really that big of an issue. Uh, even even the Giro going into October, you have uh, you know October and November. I mean now with global warming, actually the weather—the winter is coming in quite a bit later into uh, Europe. And 
doesn't really start snowing now across Europe really until uh, mid to late December into January, February. And oftentimes we'll get the snows up in uh, the Dolomites, you know, up in uh, in May. So the fear of snow and poor weather in October, November is not really that big of a concern, at least from my point of view. I mean, yeah, it could snow in October. And of course, we get that in Colorado. You get it in the Alps, you get it in Dolomites or in the Pyrenees. But typically, the weather is actually quite good in the, in the, in the uh, autumn. And going into Spain, I mean, November... They might have to tweak the route a little bit, but the first part of that course kind of goes through northern Spain anyway. So, you know, the, the weather might not be a big big of an issue as people are worried about. Um, and then also the races are doing things already to mitigate uh, some of the impacts of coronavirus if they can if they can uh, race. For example, there's talk of, you know, changing the finish uh, areas inside of the tour and the Grand Tours. You know, instead of finishing in the piazza, or in the historic center of a town, they're already talking about moving all the finish areas out to the outskirts of a town and just a, an industrial zone or just a big parking lot. It's not going to have the romance of finishing in the, you know, the heart of some medieval city in Italy, but it'll be more practical and it'll be safer. And I think those kinds of the things that are happening behind the scenes right now to get everything in place if we get to the point where we can race safely. Yeah, well, the tour has already been doing that for years, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and and that follows in line with a lot of what uh, is going on in international sport in general, which, you know, look, bike racing is not the only sport that's trying to figure this out right now. All international sports are trying to figure this out because if there's one thing that coronavirus has uh, shown us is that all international sports, even the big American sports, are quite fragile from an economic standpoint once – the TV revenues and the gate revenues, once the money stops coming in because the games aren't being played, um, people's jobs are on the line and the overall health of the sport is put into jeopardy. So I've been listening to some discussions about what they're thinking of doing with the NBA, which is like, hey, why don't you hold the playoffs as like a tournament in Las Vegas and there's no fans and you hold it in an empty gym and all the riders are sort of quarantined in hotels and there's a handful of staff people and coaches and there's riders and there are there's uh, players and they're getting tested all the time and they play the games in an empty stadium. It's televised. So you still get the t- TV revenue coming in and the TV numbers. And yeah, it does not have the same look and feel as the NBA playoffs. But and, and you know, 20 years from now, people are going to watch the YouTube clips or whatever it is and be like, wow, that's so weird. But it sort of gets you through that period. And I keep thinking about that. What well, what what is the bike race version of that? And James got to see a bit of it at Perry Nice, where there were you know very limitations on fans and really no podium. But God, I got you know when I, I just think back to all my experiences at the Tour de France, where it's like crowded rooms and chaotic finish lines and sign-ins, where there's just people and chaos everywhere, and it's like how do you really tame <laughs> tame a bicycle well, race? I was talking, you know, Bernard, you know, and I were talking about that again today, you know, and I said, well, you know, going back to this idea of some sort of a closed tour, I mean, already in September, there's going to be less people on the road. And he was just like, yeah, but there might be people back at school, there might be people at work, but there's still going to be plenty of people who've been frustrated not to be able to go out to a sporting event or go see a spectacle of some kind, or are only going to be too happy to come to the tour. And I was like, well, you know, uh, how and, and you know, I said, and, and the police force is going to be, you know, how how can you, how much more can you ask them? They've been like working overtime as it is, uh, and they will be for the next few months trying to, you know, monitor society, keep them helping with containment, things like that. And you know, how how much, how 
can you bring in additional police force? Will you even be able to get the same number of uh, police force there to help with road closures and stuff? Um, you know, mountains, you, you know, I close off a mountain, but people are camping up there for days ahead of time. So, you know, well, what's going to be possible? And then, you know, you know, once the race starts and once there's fans on the road, what do they do? They get in front of the riders and they scream and they're not keeping a six foot distance and they're not going to be at that six foot distance uh, on the Alpe d'Huez or whatever climbs we may be doing, you know, they're just, you know, cause they're going to be in the heat of the moment and they're going to, you know, yeah. so it's going to be very, it'd be very hard to imagine any kind of social distancing and privatization. And even at, even at the, even at Paris, which is a small race to begin with compared to the tour, there's still plenty of people around. Yeah, I mean, how many things have you like watched on TV, like an old old race or old movie or old something? And in this age of um, social distancing and you know being very like uh, hyper focused on like what you touch and what someone hands you, and you're just like, oh man, this movie would never like you know work in the age of COVID. And I think back to old clips of the Tour de France with like fans spraying wa- dumping water on the heads of riders as they ride by and pushing each other. And and again, just thinking back to what the tour is, I mean. All of us media members squished in some packed, sweaty scrum to try and get quotes from a rider. I mean, I was thinking like, they're just going to have to send all the journalists home. What if you have a what if you have a tour with no uh, no press room and no media scrum, and all the quotes are just sort of like WhatsApped from the team afterwards, and we end up with these really vanilla bad quotes from the riders. You know? <laughs> like, what does media look like at the at a bike race? It, uh, in coronavirus era. Well, you have to say, of, of all sports, cycling is probably the hardest to try to capture, uh, to to reproduce in the coronavirus era. Because like you said, Fred, a basketball game or a football game can be held in a stadium. You just don't let the people in there. You test and control all the players and all the staffers, no problem. You know, it could even work on a one-day race. You could have that similar model. But something as a grand tour going from point to point across an entire country going from one hot zone to another, one infected area, you know, riding through a cloud of coronavirus infection. You know, it just does it on paper. It seems like a pretty far of a stretch. I think there's ways that they can try to minimize that impact. But uh, once the open road happens, it's going to be very hard to keep people away from uh, the fans. Uh, I think I think think it's possible, but it's going to require a lot of planning, a lot of thoughtful thinking. One of the things I saw Perry Nice, which, you know, I will say, I thought that everybody adapted very quickly in terms of, say, media. Um, the press officers were generally very helpful, um, getting quotes for us, fielding, you know, we could, we're finding alternative ways, not sticking a microphone in the face of a rider, but getting quick, you know, sending in a couple questions or, or, or whatever and, and getting answers back quickly so that we could, that we could work. I think that, that, you know, I mean, there's a lot, there's a, a couple of, you know, several hundred or, you know, maximum, maybe a thousand journalists in the three weeks of the tour. Um, as compared to, I, that may, that may be one of the things you can take, but it's, you know, it's, it's yet one, one other element that has to be considered, you know, VIPs, you know, these sponsors, uh, they put in tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, sometimes more, uh, and they expect a little VIP treatment. Who do you expect a little VIP treatment? <laughs> the, fa- my, the fancy my, Airbnb. My carrot salad and couscous, maybe. <laughs> I know. Yeah. What does uh, what does press buffet look like in the era of COVID? I never get to the press buffet. Oh, press buffet. Oh, my gosh. Well, 
as we, it's pretty obvious with this discussion. I mean, it's so early on. Um, we have a sketch of what a cycling season is going to look like, but that's about it. I mean, we have little more, but as Andy said, this sketch represents a lifeline for the economic health of this sport, for teams, for riders who are still getting paid and still getting salaries, for sponsors who still feel compelled to fund their cycling team because there might be a Tour de France this year. And in the grand scheme of things, for the overall health of the sport, I think that having a sketch of a season is a good and helpful thing. Whether or not the sport will be able to pull it off, that's the big story that we're going to be continuing to uh, cover here on VeloNews.com. So for James Start and Andy Hood, I'm Fred Dreyer. Thanks so much for tuning in to the VeloNews podcast. We will come back at you next week.